Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Well, we are in this uh, series, so if you're visiting with us, you're, you're popping in the middle of a series we're doing called uh, Loved Walk Among Us. Love Walked Among Us, Learning to Love Like Jesus Loved. So every week, we're looking at a group of passages where Jesus is showing us um, about uh, love. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand and we're going to read a few passages, selected scripture, as we look at um, the love of Christ. First from John 7. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret who seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. John 12, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me, he himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And from the letter to the Corinthians, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, And so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then John 20 is uh, just after the resurrection. Mary is coming to the tomb and the body is gone. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, and she said in Arabic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. This is the reading of God's Word. Every bit of it is true, and He gives it to us because He loves us. You may be seated. Well, it's time. It's time to reveal the secret It's time to reveal the secret of the love of Jesus. 
You know, the whole time we've been doing this series, we've been talking about his love, but we've never told you the secret to his love. You know, it's Mother's Day. And when you're expecting a child as a mom, maybe it's your first, maybe it's your third, there comes a moment when you have to reveal the secret. You have to reveal whether it's a boy or a girl. You have to do a gender reveal. You have to tell everybody. And when you do tell everybody, everybody reacts to it one way or another. Look at a couple gender reveals. Yeah, not everybody's happy when the secret is revealed. There was, a, uh, there was a really old couple, and they had been married for 75 years. And the local newspaper wanted to do a story on them, so a news reporter came to sit with them and talk to them. And the news reporter looked at him and said, Can you tell us the secret to your long marriage? And the old couple looked at each other, and the old man paused, and then he turned to speak, and the reporter leaned in to write it down, and the old man said, neither one of us died. (laughs) There you go. You got the secret right there, you know? When you look at the love of Jesus, you encounter something that has never been seen. So what was the secret to his love? What made him so powerful, so directed, so impactful, unlike anything we've ever seen? He used his anger to love. He he cut right through religious hypocrisy with love. He saw the invisible pain of others and touched them with love. His tough love, his tender love, his wise love was always on point. You know, Jesus came to show us love, to give us love, but also to reveal the way of love. This last week, I was reading at night, and I was reading from a book, and I read this quote to my wife as we were in bed. Whatever controls you is really your God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by whatever is the Lord of our life. And then I turned to my wife and I said to her, I want you to be honest. What do you think controls me? And then I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't asked that question. (laughs) So what controls you? Is it not true that the secret to your life is whatever the controlling power is? So love walked among us. 
What was controlling the love of Jesus? What was the secret? Well, take your sermon outline and your bulletin there. Let's look at this together. First, dependence, the person of Jesus. Paul Miller, who uh, wrote the book, Love Walked Among Us, that we're using as a guide, he does a seminar for churches. And in one of the sessions that he does in churches, he starts out a session by showing them this phrase on a, a flip chart. I do nothing on my own. I can only do what I see my dad doing. Then he asked his audience to analyze this person just based upon that phrase. And he says people quickly become psychologists. They say things like this. This person sounds weak. Like they're almost helpless. Does this person have a mind of their own? If he's an adult, he needs some serious separation from his dad. Has this person been to counseling? This person sounds codependent. This is not healthy. And then after a while, these comments flow. And then when the hook is set deep, he shows them this verse. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. By myself, I can do nothing. Now, we see this kind of of dependence as unhealthy. As Americans, we we emphasize independence and and trusting only yourself. But the foundation of Jesus' life, the secret to his love, was a childlike trust in God whom he called Father. Jesus was not controlled by a rule book, but by a relationship. And so the choices that he made, when to love, how to love, how tough to be, how tender, when to be honest, when to do miracles, came from his Father. Now in John 7, we read this passage His brothers are trying to get him to go up to the feast, the Feast of Tabernacle, because they think it's a good idea that Jesus kind of work on his public image. Now, Jesus tells them, he says, you guys are free to do what you want. But he says, it's not the right time for me. My time has not come. His agenda, Jesus' agenda, is shaped by his heavenly Father. Even the details as to when he would go up to the feast His brothers want to give him a a lesson in marketing to improve so he can become famous. He's got to get your name out there. Now, when the Jews celebrated this feast, Jerusalem would swell to over a million people. And his family assumes that Jesus loves the crowd. And since he's an up-and-coming politician, so to speak, he needs to craft his image. And then, of course... His family benefit from his fame. But Jesus doesn't care about fame or power, only the will of his father. So he tells them no. Now it's obvious what the brothers want. They want him to go up there and do miracles in front of all these people. But Jesus won't do it. Because Jesus knows the miracles would not be acts of love, but they would be acts of manipulation for power. 
Jesus refuses to do a show of love to manipulate others for power and acceptance. Jesus continually will not use love to get love. He won't use that selfish motivation. Now, this week, Ray uh, was telling me about a book. And actually, the book is written by a woman in our church. And I haven't read it yet, but I love the title. The title is, How to Love Your Neighbor Without Being Weird. Right? Isn't that good? But it, it makes us ask the question, what would make us weird in loving our neighbor? Well, what makes us weird is the appearance of love to get love. Loving with an agenda, loving people as a project, loving them to manipulate them so that we can feel like a good Christian. It makes you weird. Um, years ago, I was uh, the youth pastor here at Seven Rivers. Um, and you know, and when you're a youth pastor, you take kids to camp. And uh, one year, we took a bunch of kids to camp and it just so happens that, that of all the churches there, we brought the most. And uh, so after that was kind of made known at a, a counselor meeting to the other churches and stuff, I was outside that evening, uh, and an, another youth pastor came up to me, and his church usually brought the most every summer. This was the first time we ever had. And he comes up to me, and he's really serious. And he says, Jones, you better enjoy being on top this summer. Because next summer, I'm bringing more kids than you. He, I mean, and he was serious. And he was using the appearance of love, bringing kids to camp, to get love, to get power. And it was easy for me to recognize it because I've done it myself. It makes you weird. According to the Wall Street Journal, there is a new fad in leadership. It's humility. And of course, the problem with this fad is that you actually have to be humble for it to work. But there's all kinds of, of fake leaders that are faking humility, like former CEO of Krispy Kreme. It was reported that he portrayed himself as very humble and nice, but that he always took the limelight from his staff. They said he was a nice arrogant, and they said the thing that was the most off-putting about him is that if you didn't notice his humility, he got angry at you. <laughs> I guess he didn't get the humble part of humility. You see, we will use the virtue of love to get love, but Jesus had a different center of gravity. He doesn't need love from other sources. He's dependent on the Father, and so he knows how to say no to his brothers. Now, you and I, we simply cannot love well on our own. We need a reference to another will, to God's will. And dependence on God means surrendering our will to him. It means that we tell God all of our lives, you're the boss, you're the boss. Second, dependence, the problem of us. Now, my wife told me this story, and she said I could use it. But when she was little, I mean like four years old little, she had a nanny 
named Mrs. Baker, who she would unkindly call Mrs. Bacon. So my wife would say to Mrs. Baker all the time, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And she said it always felt so good to say. Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God, you could summarize their rebellion that simply. They were telling God, you're not the boss of me. We're smarter than you. We know what's best for us. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is about to tell a parable, and it's framed this way. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They trusted in their goodness. Now, when we trust in our goodness, we are trusting in our self-sufficiency, our superiority over others and over God, that, that we're the boss. Robert Quivers is a celebrity radio host And he said he discovered the meaning of life. This is what he says. What I learned is very simple. That your life belongs to you. And it really doesn't matter what you do with it. But you should do what you want to do with it. Not what your parents, friends, or culture want. It should be an I-directed life. And that is the meaning of life. That's not the meaning of life. That's the problem. You see, our willfulness, our wanting an I-directed life can be so strong yet so subtle that it pollutes our love. Just look at our country. Look at all the division. It's because everybody's I-directed life is in conflict with everybody else's I-directed life. In our culture, we are told that we are smarter than the other side. We're smarter than the government. We're smarter than medicine. We don't really ask questions. We just declare that we are smarter. And you see people all the time on social media letting you know that they know the truth. They know what is fake news. We demonize others to leverage our superior view of self. And our love is polluted by our self-will. Here's what uh, Matt Chandler says. He says, the idolatry that exists in the man's heart always wants to lead him away from his Savior and back to self-reliance, no matter how pitiful that self-reliance is or how many times it has betrayed him. This is what Jesus says in John 12. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Now just think about this. Jesus did not have to be dependent on the Father. He is truly the only self-sufficient human who ever walked the earth. I mean, he could legitimately say to his Father, hey, Dad, Um, you're not really in charge of me. I'm an adult and I am God. And um, no offense, but you're not the boss. I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-competent. 
But that's not what he did. Why? Because he loved the Father more than his own agenda. And every expression of his love flowed from that. That was the secret. This past week, I went down uh, to Tampa to see my mom. She's 93. And the reason I went down is because my brother from Dallas, one of my brothers was in town, and uh, he asked me to come down uh, to see him. And I said, sure, yeah, I'd love to come down. I hadn't seen you in a while. And, but he said to me, he said, there's something I want to talk to you about. I said, all right. And what you need to know about this brother is um, he is gay. He is homosexual. And everybody in my family, we, we've known this forever. It's no secret. But he and I had never had a conversation about it. And that's what he wanted to talk to me about. Now, just stop for a second and just see the players on the stage. I am a pastor. He is my homosexual brother. So the potential for tension and awkwardness and friction and disagreement is really high. And as he is talking to me, he is demonstrating love, transparency, deference, respect, and kindness towards me. I felt nothing but love from him. And then he apologizes to me for how he bullied me when we were kids. And he was really mean. He asked for my forgiveness. It was beautiful. Now, in that moment, he clearly understood love way more than I did. And the words of Jesus came to me. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, the pastors of the day. And he says to them, he says, the prostitutes, the sexually broken, the prostitutes and the sinners are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you religious leaders. They're getting it. You don't get it. And so Jesus is saying this to the religious, to people like you and me. Now, why was that true? Because they understood their need. They understood their dependence upon the grace of God. Whereas often religious people like us, we trust in our goodness too much. We think our perceived goodness makes us smarter than unchurched people and thus better at love, don't we? And so this cripples our ability to love because we're dependent on our goodness and not dependent upon God. But thankfully, God brings things into our life to break us of our stubborn will. Sometimes it's hardship, sometimes it's suffering, sometimes it's a challenging relationship. That's why I love what Paul says here to the Corinthians. 
He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we experienced. He says, we're under great pressure beyond our ability to endure. He said, we despaired of life itself. We felt like we had the sentence of death. And then he says this, but this happened so that we may not rely upon ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I love his honesty. He's saying it was so difficult that we despaired of life itself. But then once we kind of got our legs, we realized that God was doing it to break us of our reliance on ourselves. And he's now saying this with joy to the Corinthians. Do we ever talk like that? Do we ever think like that? Do you ever think that, that God has brought something, but this happened to break me of my stubborn self-reliance? Paul Miller, uh, who wrote this book, uh, he, he has a disabled daughter, and, and his daughter's name is Kim. And this is what he writes in the book. God gave us Kim to keep us from all harm, to keep us from being so self-righteous and together. God used Kim to bring us to the end of ourselves, to teach us about love, to teach us about himself. Our lives no longer work. We had to learn how to live from the bottom up. We had to learn how to live depending on God. I hear you, Paul. Third, dependence, the power to love. The power to love. Three little things here. First, prayer. Jesus was always praying, always getting away to be with his Father. When our will dies, even a little, we start asking God what to do. When we start holding up our agenda to him, we start to hunger for God in new ways. And God gives us means of grace by where we can gain access to the power to love people. Now prayer, prayer is surrendering our will. Surrendering our will and asking God how to love. Now not long ago, uh, there was a man in our church who was dying. And uh, his name is Don Whitehead. And uh, I knew Don pretty well. I'd known him for years. Um, just, just a delightful guy. And uh, his death was slow. And, uh, and up until the end, really, uh, Don was pretty sharp. You know, he, he could read. He could, uh, he could talk on the phone. He could do puzzles. He could read his Bible. He could pray. Uh, he was just weak physically. And he told me, uh, the last time I saw him, uh, I went to see him. He told me in a very non-religious, non-pious way, about how close he had become with Jesus. How much deep and abiding joy he had in his relationship with Christ. And it, it, was, it was just beautiful. And this is what he said to me. He said, Adam, when I pray, I don't ask God to fix it. I don't ask him to cure me. I don't ask him to fix my kids or their problems. I ask him to please be with me, give me peace, trust, and endurance for this season of life. I've just stopped fighting with God about who's smarter 
in regards to my life. He is. And then he told me that he realized that a chunk of his life and his relationship with God had been tilted towards God fixing his life. Now, God wants us to bring our request to him. But isn't it true that your relationship with God can sometimes just be so much about you wanting him to fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it? And Don's words really broke me. Because I realized that in my life there's a whole lot more of fix this than there is thy will be done. And God used this because it enabled me to love someone in my life whom I have been trying to fix their life for them, trying to manipulate God to fix their life. And I was able to rest and had new energy for love. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do two things, and they're really simple. But these two things will change your life. Years ago, we were doing a series on spiritual practices. And we encouraged everybody in the congregation to begin every day getting on their knees first thing in the morning and praying just a short prayer about your day, giving your life and your day to God. Not long, just quick. You know, when I do this, sometimes I'll just pray one verse. Lord, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. Real quick, one minute. Then go get your coffee. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to stop calling yourself a Christian. Don't use that word. Now, there's nothing wrong with the word Christian. It's fine. It just doesn't have much bite to it anymore. What I want you to do instead, when you think about who you are, your self-referencing identity, is to call yourself, I am a follower of Jesus. Who am I? I am a follower. He leadeth me. Now, sometimes I don't follow real well, but that's who I am, a follower of Jesus. Prayer and then the word. Jesus depended on his Father, talking to him and listening to him. Jesus lived, breathed, and taught Scripture. He was the Word of God in the flesh, but he also had God's Word hidden in his heart. He studied the Scriptures. He digested them. They came out of him. A friend of mine is a pastor in Nashville, and he had a guy in his church who was uh, dying of ALS, and so you know, it was a real slow, progressive thing. And so my friend would go see his friend named John all the time. He'd call him on the phone, check on him, drop by on his way home from work. And uh, as John got near the end of his life, my friend went to John and said, John, you, listen, you got, we got to talk. You got to tell me your secret, because I just don't get you, John. You're suffering, you're dying, and you have peace and contentment, and people come to give you their love, to serve you and your family, and they leave your house more full of your love than when they came. 
People feel so encouraged by being with you. What's your secret, John? And he, he kind of you know, said in just a real casual way, simple way, he said this. He said, well, it's actually really easy, I think. I've been a Bible reader my whole life. I just think it finally sank in. Finally sank in. So prayer, God's word, and then Father. Father. I did a funeral for a man in our church. This was, I don't maybe a year and a half ago. And uh, just a delightful guy. Uh, I've known him for 20 years. Always willing to serve. Always jumping in. Very pleasant. Very uh, peaceful man. So I did the funeral. Uh, and his family came. And I met his kids. And then a month or so later, I get two thank you cards in the mail. One from each of his sons. And one of the sons, the thank you card, expressing gratitude, talking about his dad. I mean, it was, it was really how I experienced his dad. This son and I experienced his dad pretty much the same way. But the second thank you card, this son experienced the father completely differently. This is what he said at one point. I don't have to find it here. Oh, here it is. Okay. He said, he said, I'm glad that people experienced my dad in a way that was different than my own. So two sons, very close in age, but a completely different experience of the father. G.I. Packer writes this. Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. Knowing God is more than knowing about him. It's a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with him by him. Friends open their hearts to each other by what they say and do. So you must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one and could not indeed be a deep relationship between persons if it were not so. So let me ask you, How do you experience the Father? Do you experience the Father? You see, we cannot say from our hearts, thy will be done. If we cannot say it, we will not know peace. We will feel compelled to control people and control life with our will. We will use love to get love. If we do not experience God as our Father, we will not be able to say, Thy will be done. It will just be a religious game we play. You know, Jesus' last conversation with his Father before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's talking to his Father, he's praying, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. The cup represented drinking the wrath of God on the cross. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus had a will. He had an opinion. He had an agenda. He had something he wanted. Let this cup pass. What is happening in that moment? What's happening? 
Jesus is obeying the Father. And you are in that moment if you belong to Jesus because you're getting credit for his obedience at the most intense moment in history. So that all of our failures to be dependent on God, all of our failures to lay down our will to love are healed in this moment. So that your failures to love well don't crush you because he was crushed for you. So we are now liberated to live a life dependent upon God, free from condemnation. But this, what, what happened there also opens up to what happens right at the resurrection. And that's Jesus' encounter with Mary right after the resurrection. Mary is, is devastated. She comes to the tomb. The body is gone. She is confused, disoriented. She is in survival mode. <laughs> I, I feel you, Mary. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Supposing him to be the gardener. She didn't recognize. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I will do it. I will carry the body of Jesus. No, Mary, no. He's about to carry you. And Jesus says to Mary, her eyes are open, Mary, go tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. My father, your father, Mary. You see, the death and the resurrection of Jesus kick open the door so that people like you and I can say, depend, trust, and rely upon the same father as Jesus. That we can cry, Abba, Father. We can experience him as father, enjoy him as father. And that, that is the powerful secret to love. Let's pray. Jesus, would you just blow us away by the staggering reality that we have the same Father as you do? And that by having him as a father and being his child, we can ask for anything. We can enjoy him, listen to him, submit to him, cry out to him, be angry at him, and be enfolded into his love. Jesus, we need a father. Help us to not act like orphans so much of the time, but children who are well-loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, 
please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.